0: peeps (laughs) hey creepies what up what up
1: how's it going how's it going on this Saturday for you
0: (laughs) it's good Um, we went and helped my daughter pick out a winter formal dress Yes. (sighs) got through it Um, she picked out a very cute one and then we went to dinner um, and we got a raspberry mojito my girl Kay over here was rocking the fishbowl size margarita so we're feeling pretty good the husband was driving so we said uh round them up dude and when she says fishbowl like she means fishbowl i didn't know
1: that that was about to happen the waitress brought it out and i was like dang
0: that's the size of my head and my girl's was like, waste not want not. So she finished it. I drank
1: the whole thing, okay.
0: <laughs> I mean. So bear with us while she narrates this story. Yeah, luckily it's my time this this week to narrate. And of course, you know, feeling loose. <laughs> the goose has got her
1: feeling loose. The goose got me feeling loose. But luckily, this is a more lighthearted story. It's not like. It's just not like super sad or depressing.
0: So we're not gonna be like dicks when we read this and yeah, start laughing, right? Exactly. Okay. So it worked out perfect. <laughs> not blame it on the uh, 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 alcohol. Yep, exactly. <laughs> blame it on the mojitos and margs, people. <laughs> and uh, I have a little shooter of apple crown. You know, if before the story ends, if she starts to dry, gotta be boring as shit. Then we can.
1: Yeah, we got here and she already poured me also. A, Shot of coconut rum. I said, "Girl, you're trying to get me fucked up." <laughs> it's working. Okay,
0: <laughs> I'm here for you. Thank you. Thank
1: you so much. Um. Oh, shout out to Dax Shepard <laughs> before we forget. What up? What up? Watch this be the one that he hears. You know, out of every episode we do. He hears this one where I sound like a complete moron. And have like, I love it.
0: <laughs> I love it. I love it. I don't care. I'm a
1: little bit more together than this normally. Well, kind of. <laughs> we try. We try, you know? Um, but yeah, so I, I found this story on The New Yorker. So literally all my information came from The New Yorker. Um, and they titled this story, so I had to steal the title, so I'm giving them a shout out cred um, The Perils of Pearl and Olga.
0: Not Pearl and Oats.
1: Not <laughs> Pearl and Oats. Different,
0: different guys.
1: <laughs> but oh. I like your thinking.
0: <laughs> it doesn't like a little hollow note strokes.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, Pearl and Olga. They were complete strangers. They were not involved in each other's lives, they didn't know each other, um, but their paths kind of crossed one time, um, when they were drawn into an enraged ex-husband's terrifying plot. Hmm. So, we're taking this back a bit. We're gonna go back to the morning of December 31st, 1946. Two young women, among many other people, got on a subway train. They got on separately. They weren't together. It was at the 55th Street BMT station in Brooklyn, New York. And they were sat across from each other in a car as, you know, the train was moving off towards Manhattan. They had never met. They've never spoken. um, But their lives were drawn together and not You know, not in like a good, feel-good, fuzzy kind of way. They were both working girls and more than ordinarily attractive. One of them was tall. She had pale skin, um, dark eyes, shining black hair. She was 28 years old and her face, besides being beautiful, had an interesting troubled look about it.
0: Why are you looking at me like that? Because you're 27, black hair, pale skin. I'm a time traveler, guys. (laughs) This story's about me in the 40s. I'm just like, is this a biography? But continue, continue. (laughs) Surprise (laughs) at the end. Surprise, (laughs) motherfucker.
1: (laughs) Um, But she had noticed the other girl was carrying a gift-wrapped package. um, Kind of like about the size of a large shoebox about... Um, And it had kind of a slight opening at one of the ends, which kind of like stuck out, and it looked like the lens of a camera. Sketch, if you ask me. But uh, without thinking much about it, you know, she kind of just sat there and was curious what kind of gift was inside the package. But she wasn't super, you know, invested in what this random girl was holding because it was just a random girl on the subway. The other girl was barely 19. Um, She was small and blonde. Her name was Pearl Lusk. Only a week earlier on the day before Christmas, Pearl had found herself disillusioned with New York and its ways, Um, but the moon hadn't really lasted long. Now, as the subway train jounced and clattered along, she felt excited and happy. She held her gift-wrapped package carefully on her lap with both hands, Um, and every now and then she kind of glanced briefly at this tall, dark girl across the aisle As if to, like, make sure she was still sitting there. So things were feeling a little weird, a little set up, a little sketchy, but... Except for two things that happened to her on Christmas Eve. Pearl Lusk had been pleased with New York ever since she came to the city to kind of start her new life and her new beginning. And she loved to tell everybody this. She had arrived in the autumn of that same year of 1946, um, some months after graduating from high school in Quakertown, not far from Philadelphia. For a while, she lived with her mom and her stepdad in Brooklyn, but as soon as she got a job, um, she worked as a sales girl in a department store. She moved to a furnished room all on her own in the Upper West Side of Manhattan. So Pearl, you know, she wanted a new life. She wanted to start over. Um, she did over both herself and the room almost at once. You know, she began using mascara for the first time. She settled on a darker shade of lipstick than the girls at Quakertown High had gone for. Um, she took some advice from an expensive hairdresser on the West End Avenue. She abandoned her blonde bangs and kind of just like had these big tussled blonde curls going on. So... You know, she was giving herself a makeover, a new beginning. She also was really getting into decorating her apartment. She hung pink curtains um, at the one window of her room. And then she kind of bought like this lavender cover for the studio couch. She made friends quickly with many of the sales girls at the store that she was working at. She lunched at a soda fountain every single day and she dined in a cafeteria um, almost every night with large groups of her new friends. Her favorite lunch was African lobster tail salad and Coca-Cola. Um, she then followed that with a junior banana split, and her favorite dinner was chicken pot pie with mushrooms, pecan pie.
0: So you're a pecan girl. <laughs> I say pecan.
1: I do, too, normally, but I said... Pe- pecan. Pecan, for some reason right then.
0: Okay. Guess, is no judgment.
1: I guess drunk me says pecan. Okay. But sober me says pecan. All right. Um, hey. With I'm some, on board with this. With some whipped cream and coffee.
0: So she ate good. <laughs> Dude, pecan pie is the jam. It's no joke. It's delish. No joke. For real.
1: It really is really good. Um, yeah, so she was, you know, healthy, cheerful. She was a really happy person. She was just really enjoying her new life that she started in New York. She soon also began having dates with young men who worked at the store and as the holiday season approached, her landlady more and more frequently called her to the telephone in the downstairs hall. She was getting hit up on those late nights, you know. Not like that, but, you know, they were just gone. Um, On evenings when the telephone didn't ring for her, she read 25-cent editions of popular novels and detective stories, um, one after another, lying at ease on her lavender studio couch. So, you know, this was in the 40s. Back then, back in the day, dating looked very different than it does today. Um, Pearl was a well-brought-up girl, and she would never go out with young men that she had not been introduced to, no matter how handsome that they might be. So on Thanksgiving Day, a man who she said that she considered the most handsome man that she had ever seen in her life. Except for, you know, of course, certain movie stars, she said. He tried to pick her up on the subway in Brooklyn when she was going to travel to see her mother. Um, Although she was polite and she talked to him, you know, she engaged in conversation, she still refused to have a drink with him or to give him her name and address because even though she was attracted to him... She didn't know him, so she felt like she had to decline. Um, You know, she just randomly met him, so she didn't think that it would be the most proper, respectable thing to do. Um, He told her that his name was Alan LaRue. Afterward, from time to time, she thought somewhat regretfully about his, you know, his good looks, his romantic name, his whole charisma, charm. Um, but overall, you know, she was glad and proud of herself that she hadn't consented to go out on a date with this random guy that she just met on the train. What with the crowded lunches and dinners with, you know, all of her friends that she met through the sales job that she had, the occasional dates with the guys that she had met at the store... And on her off nights when she would just get into these books that she would find, she was really content in her life and really busy, you know. She kept herself busy between all of this stuff, and she was just really happy. Then, on Christmas Eve, after only three months of her new life that she had been living there, the department store laid her off. Um, and it wasn't just her, you know, I was along with an, a bunch of other sales girls because the Christmas rush was over, so they decided to lay off a bunch of people. And on top of that, her landlady told her that same day that, you know, she was getting tired of calling her to the telephone because she was getting all these phone calls. Um, and in the future, she said that she was only going to tell her that someone called for her if it was her mother that wanted to speak to her. So, you know you know, by getting rid of her salary and kind of like obliterating her social life, the department store and the landlady were definitely preparing pearl for this next encounter um, with that handsome stranger that she turned down on the train. So, you know, the path was kind of leading her leading her down uh, down this road. She ran into him again the second time in a subway train in Brooklyn on the evening of the day after Christmas when she was on her way back from her mother's. And this time, you know, she was like, fuck it. She agreed to, you know, she agreed to get off the train with him um, at Times Square and have a drink. She's like, what do I have to lose? I lost my job. I can't have phone privileges, so I lost my social life. Like, um, whatever, I'll go have a drink with this guy that I think is the most handsome guy I've ever seen in my life. Which is, I feel like, you know, something we probably would all do.
0: (laughs) No joke, no joke. No joke. (laughs) YOLO! (laughs) YOLO!
1: Pearl (laughs) was living her best life. So, (laughs) she ordered her favorite, which was a scotch whiskey and a 7-Up. She... You know, started talking to him. They were having good conversations. She told him about losing her job and about the landlady, and he was really sympathetic to her situation. Um, Later on, she remembered that his manner kind of seemed to change a little bit um, as they chatted over their drinks that night. She says, He seemed interested in me like any other man at first, she told an assistant district attorney. But the more I talked, the more I felt like he had some kind of different interest in me. You know, not just like any regular romantic conversation or anything like that. She felt like something was a little bit off. Uh, But at any rate, you know, after she had talked a while with him, the man said that, you know, I have a job for you if you want to do it, you know. She just told him that she got laid off, so he said, well, I can offer you a job doing something. He told her about the work, and she was intrigued. It kind of reminded her of the sort of thing that Perry Mason, the lawyer, was always asking his secretary Della Street to do um, in the novels that she would read uh, by Erie Stanley. Uh, Gardner. I don't really know these, but I think, you know, she was really into mystery novels and stuff like that. So this type of job that he was kind of explaining to her really, really intrigued her, and she thought it was kind of like an exciting opportunity.
0: Yeah, well, I thought that about Fifty Shades of Grey, too, so, you know. You never know, man. <laughs> <laughs> So,
1: besides being the most handsome man that she had ever seen, she thought that Alan LaRue was by far the best dressed also. He had on a double-breasted gray suit with, like, widely spaced pencil stripes. He had the coat with that had, like, the padding that emphasized his broad shoulders, and it, like, made the cloth drape down his narrow hips. He had this, like, white-on-white shirt that had a collar with extra-long points, and he wore a striking blue tie with a flower design in ivory and gold. So he was popping, he, he was looking good to her, and he was offering her a job, so you know, how could Pearl resist? So before the evening was over, Pearl had enthusiastically accepted the job. Um, her employer was calling her Pearl, and she was calling him Alan. Now Pearl jumped out of bed early the next morning, she was pretty excited, you know, she did her face routine, she brushed her hair, put in, did her curls, put on like her best daytime dress, and over it she wore a coat of imitation Persian lamb that she was buying from the store on the installment plan. She had three hats. The one she liked best was the gray one with the large bow on top and she put that on. So she was trying to look her best for her first day at this new job. She was to meet Allen around the corner from the building at 42 West 39th Street at half past nine. She was pretty anxious to get started on her new job, not only because it was a job, but because it sounded so exciting. Alan had told her that he was a private detective working for an insurance company that specialized in insuring jewelry and consequently recovering that jewelry when it had been stolen from its clients. Now he had reason to suspect, he says, that a young woman named Olga, who was private secretary to the owner of Croydon Hat Company with offices in the building on West 39th Street, had stolen some jewelry um, that was pretty valuable from one of their clients and was carrying it pinned inside of her clothes. The woman knew Alan by sight, he said, so for that reason, he couldn't risk being seen by her because, you know, she might suspect what he was up to or, like, in his words kind of like stash the jewels somewhere or dump them because she would like figure out that he was on to her so he said he couldn't ask the police to arrest her until he could prove that she actually had the jewels and pearl was going to help him prove that that was her job he was going to tell her how and when she met him that morning um and kind of like her assignment for Catching this jewel thief. Now, Alan was waiting for her when she got there. Um, As she later reported the conversation, he said, Here's what I want you to do first go up to the offices of the hat company and ask the receptionist if Miss Sadie White is working there. There isn't any Sadie White, of course, but while you're talking to the receptionist you'll kind of get a chance to get a good look at Olga so that you'll know her and you'll know when you see her again that that's the, the target and the person that we have in mind. Um, she, she sits just outside the door that leads into the private office of the owner and then he also showed her a photograph of Olga. He went on taking out one of his inside coat pockets. Um, He says, but I want you to see her in person so that you'll be able to recognize her, even in a crowd, like in a subway crowd. I'm gonna get you to follow her around when she leaves this afternoon. Um, Now go up there and then meet me here afterward and tell me if you think that you can recognize her good enough to tell her whenever she goes and leaves. Um, So basically he's just saying this lady's a jewel thief. And your first assignment is to basically just go into her office and take a good look at her so that you can remember what she looks like for future purposes. So Pearl carried out this mission. Um, She did it exactly as he said, and then she rejoined Alan. She told him that she would now know Olga anywhere, that she had memorized what she looked like, she memorized the clothes that she was wearing, uh, but also even her street coat and her hat, Um, that was hanging near her desk, And Alan said, that's great. Um, Now I'll tell you how we're going to work this. And don't forget, there's going to be a big reward in it for you when we get those jewels back. He said, you take most of the day off. Go to the movies or something, but don't tell anybody about this because there are leaks all over in this racket and it might get back to Olga. She leaves here every afternoon at five. Meet me at my apartment at 204 East 17th Street at half past three and I'll show you exactly how we're going to prove that she's carrying those jewels. So Pearl didn't really know exactly how this was going to play out or what was going to happen, but she was just so excited to be a part of it and it felt exciting and thrilling for her. So she was doing everything that Alan had asked her. So she went to the movies, just like he said. She saw a double feature. Um, She brought some of her friends who were still working at the store. Um, And then afterwards, she met Alan at his apartment right on the dot of the time that he said. There, he showed her an interesting object that he said was an X-ray camera, okay? It looked like a shoebox with a hole in one end and was done up in a brown wrapping paper, kind of like just an ordinary gift wrapping box or whatever a short piece of wire with a loop on the end of it hung out of the bottom of the box and he goes all you do is point this at her and pull the wire he explained he says the x-ray picture will show us if she has the jewels but don't snap the picture where she can see you do it take it when she gets off the train in brooklyn because that's where she lives You want to be right behind her when you follow her out of the train so that you can take it at a close range. You want to be only two or three feet away from her when you snap the picture. After you take it, meet me where we had the drinks last night, and I'll take the camera and get the picture developed. So when I kind of first read this, I was like, yeah, freaking right. 1940s, an x-ray camera in this little janky box that this random guy gives her. I'm like, how does she I, I don't know. Pearl, bless your heart girl, but how do you think that's legit?
0: <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> oh, I I get it. I remember in the two thousands, early, before a camera phones, like just trying to take a regular camera with you to the club was like I'm gonna put this way, drink and dance, and <laughs> right
1: the fact that this was in the 40s and he's saying it's an x ray and he could see inside of her jacket to see if she's got these jewels. It's like, and be sneaky about it, yeah. Sketchy, sketchy, bro. I don't know. But Pearl was l- like, she was literally beyond excited. She's like, I got you, I got you. She was like living for this, you know. Which is sad, but um, she just wanted to be a part of this new adventurous job. And she did exactly what she was told. Everything that he told her to do, she did. Um, She went back to 39th Street. She spotted Olga as she left the building. She followed her to the Times Square subway station. She sat near her until the train reached the 55th Street station in Brooklyn. And she followed close behind her as she got out pointed the box at her and pulled the wire just like he said so pearl was obviously hoping that she got a good picture because she wanted to catch the jewels in olga's pocket or whatever Um, and then she ended up catching a train back to times square to meet alan where he was waiting for her in the bar and grill he questioned her kind of asking how she did how it went Um, and to show that she had taken the picture, how close she had been to Olga when she took it, and whether Olga had noticed anything. Pearl told him that she wasn't more than two and a half feet-ish from Olga when he pulled the wire, or when she pulled the wire, and that Olga didn't notice anything. Because her back was turned, she was hurrying out of the station, Olga wasn't even able to see that Pearl was doing any of this. Alan said that he would get the picture developed that night, and if she would come to his apartment in the morning, he would tell her how the picture had turned out. When Pearl saw him the next morning, he said the picture did not turn out well at all. He said, I think the camera's in trouble. I'll have to get a better one, and it may take a couple of days. You call me here in three days, and I'll let you know how things stand. So when Pearl called Alan, he told her that he had the new camera, and he wanted her to meet him at an automat near Union Square at 8 o'clock the next morning, which was the morning of December 31st. Pearl was right on time. She found that the new camera was bigger and kind of heavier than the last one that she had, Uh, but it's, it's had like the same sort of loop wire hanging out of the bottom that she was meant to pull and it was wrapped like a gift in paper with Merry Christmas in red and Happy New Year in green printed all over the entire box. Alan said that he wanted her to ride over to Olga's station in Brooklyn and pick her up when she got on the train to go to work. Then she was to sit near her in the subway, and when she got out of the train at Times Square to take the picture exactly as she had taken the one the other with the other camera. He says, remember to aim it low at her waist. That's probably where she's carrying the jewels, you know, like pinned inside of her dress at the waist. So Pearl did as she was told, as she always did. um, When the train reached Times Square, she followed Olga through the door, pointed the box at her and pulled the wire. Except this time when she did that, when she pulled the wire, there was a roaring explosion and the parcel nearly jumped out of her hands. Olga screamed and fell on her back, holding her left leg, which was seemed to have been nearly blown off. A subway guard rushed up asking, you know, what happened, what's going on? And Pearl, who had been so close to Olga that she was splattered with blood, said to him, I just took a woman's picture and somebody shot her. So things aren't clicking in Pearl's head right now.
0: like You need you to catch up here a little bit. <laughs> yeah, Pearl girl, you pulled that
1: wire and then she just gets shot. But she's still thinking that she just took a picture. <laughs> uh, yeah. Your man set you up. Mm-hmm. Big he, time. He did his dirty deed. Big time set up so a man in the crowd put a tourniquet on olga's leg and a policeman appeared and kind of grabbed pearl ripped open her gift box with the quote you know camera inside of it and quickly saw that what was inside was a sawed off shotgun then finally pearl you know she put two and two together and she just broke down she started to cry you know the patrolman was holding her arm she leaned over to olga and said i'm awfully so i'm awfully sorry i shot you there was this new job you see and i thought i was taking your picture with an x-ray camera <laughs> can you imagine like you were just shot and then the person that shot you said i'm so sorry i thought i was just taking an x-ray picture of you <laughs> like i'd be like am i dying because i must be like, having The delusions. more you
0: talk, the more confused I am. <laughs> yeah, it
1: just, oh, Pearl. Pearl, Pearl, Pearl. It's not getting better, Pearl. It's not getting better, girl. Um, yeah, so after she said that, Olga just kind of looked up at her and quickly looked away, pretty much as if she considered Pearl's role in this drama not even worthy of her attention, probably also because she was in a crap ton of pain. Um... Speaking to nobody in particular, she said in what seemed to, you know, people in like a tone of resignation. She said, well, he got me this time. Now, if he wants me, he can take me. I'm crippled. I wonder what happened to the police. He must have been too smart for them. So Olga kind of knew what was going on. You know, clearly there's some history that she had been aware of because she said, he got me this time, so she knew who was part of it. Bazinga. (laughs) For real. (laughs) So during the last two months of that year, it turned out that Olga had already told her story and her situation to the police many times, and she had to tell it again later on after this incident and occasionally in the presence of stenographers so there's kind of like this long transcript um, that Olga gives with her statements where she's kind of explaining the situation and how things turned out the way that they did. So in her statements she basically tells the police you know she had been married to this man for about a year and a half and everything seemed to be good and they were having good relationship but then he kind of like snapped one day and he picked her up she was gonna take the train but he picked her up she wasn't feeling very well so he was like i can just take you home and she's like okay but he didn't he decided to drive to manhattan and then while they were in the car he had a knife and she says that it had, like, a little button on it, and he pressed the knife, um, and it had, like, a big blade, and it shot out, and he pressed it up against her throat. She was, like, trying to convince him to get out of the car, you know, trying to convince him, like, what, is, what are you doing? Please stop. Like, why is this happening? She says that he held it up against her throat and said that he would kill her if she screamed or if she cried too loudly in the car. He then drove toward the Manhattan Bridge and they went over that and then on the highway near Riverside Drive and then toward the country places, um, Poughkeepsie, Poughkeepsie, I don't know how you say that, uh, but just to another area. So once they got to this area, he stopped at one of the tourist cabins and he rented it out. Um you know she said she didn't want to go in the cabin she didn't want to be there obviously because she was scared but he had this knife in his pocket and he threatened her so what was she supposed to do so she stayed there and they stayed in this cabin for two days so he also had a shotgun she says and a revolver and also another little knife that he carried with him so she felt very uncomfortable very unsafe like obviously he's threatening her she can't leave But it's her husband, and she doesn't really know what's going on or what's happening. So after the two days, they drove back to New York, and he made her go to this place on Canal Street. Um, And she says it looked kind of like a place that sold guns and shotguns and stuff like that, and he bought more while he was there. Um, He got a revolver, I guess, and then after the revolver... He held it up to her temple and then he kept driving back to Poughkeepsie, but in a different tourist cabin. So at that point, at the second cabin that they were at, they were there for five days all together. And then after the five days, they drove back, back to Brooklyn and they went to her niece's home. And once they got there you know she was so obviously in shock and like freaked out from this like abduction of her own husband and like threatening to kill her and all this stuff that she basically collapsed on the steps once she got there and after that you know she didn't want to be with him anymore obviously because a lot of people who would want to be with someone who does that um and they kind of were like in the process or she was in the process of separating from him not wanting to see him ever again or being with him now on november 1st of that year she was in her home in the kitchen and she was just helping her mom set the dinner table and the window was opened And then she says all of a sudden I felt a very sharp sting on my right leg when I bent down to touch it, it was bleeding. She said she couldn't see what exactly was happening and what hit her or what happened because she said there was just too much blood and she did notice a hole, it was in her thigh There were two separate holes, I guess, in her thigh and on the right side and in the back of it. So it just like basically went through the window and she had to go to the hospital for about 10 days. At that point, she was talking to detectives and telling them about everything that happened, you know, the two separate abduction trips to Poughkeepsie and the five days that she was with her husband and about the shooting in the home Um, and you know she told them like I'm positive that my husband's the one who did this he's clearly after me Uh, it couldn't be anybody else but him so after this police kinda just took her statement they didn't really do anything her husband didn't get charged nothing really happened Um, so she went back to work her sister went with her um, and at this point, they were walking toward the station, and there were elevated pillars on the New Architect Avenue, and she saw her husband in back of one, or, one of them, and her sister also saw him too. So when she got back to work, she called the police at the 66 Precinct in Brooklyn, and she told them that she'd seen him because she was obviously terrified. She was frightened that he would do something to her, and she said that she spoke to one of the detectives there and he told her not to worry which is just so crazy cuz it's like all this stuff is happening to her and they're not doing anything about it and they're just they just keep basically saying like oh thank you for telling us we'll take your statement don't worry but don't worry but it's like how can she not worry when clearly he just keeps coming after her and it's just like only intending on harming her so on december 9th she got a phone call in the morning from him at work and he said to her that he was watching her he knew everything he knew when she went to work and that he did not aim right the first time but that he would aim again and he would kill her he literally said that to her word for word and
0: Thank you for your honesty. Mm mm-hmm yep
1: and she and she told the police again um she said please send somebody please have somebody escort me home i'm afraid to like live my life i'm afraid that he's gonna kill me she said i knew something terrible was gonna happen to me and he said that again they said
0: she shouldn't worry well we all learned in other stories back then well, if we don't see him do it, then it's not against the law. Which is so wild that that was actually Okay, not that it's against the law, but they can't er- do anything if they don't see him do it. Yeah. Or say it.
1: I can't even believe that that was, like, how it was. And
0: that was, like, in the 70s. Right. It was a... Uh... Burning bed. Um, yeah. hmm That's so crazy that
1: it was even like that. These... Women, you know, have to live in fear of their own husbands and nobody can do anything about it to help them. So after that, you know, she's still just living in fear because nobody's helping her. And she says a few days later, she saw him again lurking in the hallways and behind cars. And she also saw him at the Times Square station one night when she was going home. So basically, he was stalking her. She said that he called her office every single day. And she, every day, would call the police and tell them. She would call them every single day. Um, She says one time when she saw him, she ran. She flew down the steps. um, She rushed out of there and... She was just so terrified for her life. She said, I'm so frightened. My husband is following me. I know he's going to do something terrible to me. She was asking people if she could stand next to them and if she could, like, be near them because she just did not want to be alone with him. So again, he kept calling and she kept telling the police. Finally, they took her calls a little bit more seriously. They sent a couple of detectives to her house, um just to kind of stand guard because she was so terrified. And nothing really happened that night. Um, you know, they said that they were going to protect her and they would guard her and nothing was going to happen to her. So they, she kind of had a little bit of protection at this point after calling too many times for them to actually do something about it. Um, so then this next day, this day where all this happened, December 31st, This is kind of Olga's point of view. She said that she was carrying a box, a pretty big box. It was wrapped in like Christmas wrapping. And she said she noticed that it had one protruding side, like at the end of the box. And, you know, she didn't talk to her. She didn't really think too much of it, but she definitely noticed this weird looking box and that this girl was sitting pretty close to her. And she just says, all of a sudden on the platform, she heard a really loud blast and then all of a sudden felt a really sharp pain in her left leg, bent down to like hold it and reeled over and fell down on her back and then remembered people running towards her. And she says, I remember a gentleman bending over and I remember a girl and the girl was Pearl Lusk. She says, now get control of yourself. What did you notice about yourself? She couldn't feel her leg. And she says she was practically swimming in blood with just how much was coming out. So after the shooting, Olga was brought to the hospital. She was in the emergency room. They cut off her clothes and they cut off her leg six inches above her knee. Oh, my God. So it did damage, definitely. Definitely did some damage, especially, I'm sure, being so close because Pearl was, like, extremely close to her when she shot. So after the shooting, Pearl was taken to the West 30th Street Station House where she told her story, and she was shown a photograph of Olga and Rocco, a.k.a. this Alan Lusk guy, that had been snapped in a nightclub before their marriage. In the photograph, Rocco was grinning expansively and he was dressed in a pencil-striped suit, a white shirt, and a flower tie. Basically what he wore, you know, when he was with Pearl. And he looked happy. She said, that's the man. Um, He even has the same clothes on. So while the police were looking for Rocco, they tried to find out what they could about him. Neither Olga or her parents could even tell them much. All they knew was that he had met Olga at a dance in Brooklyn in 1944 and had married her after a brief courtship. He would disappear sometimes for weeks and then return with lots of spending money and as often as not a new car. So he was pretty mysterious, pretty sketchy even like in his marriage with Olga. He was fond of hunting and camping and once or twice went by himself for the weekend um, taking along a shotgun and a sleeping bag. And he never really talked about his background. He was super vague with how he made his living and he was always very, very jealous of Olga. And after some violent incidents, you know, kind of what she was talking about before too, she decided to leave him. And it was then that he began telling her that he would kill her if she did not come back to him. The police discovered that in 1938, Rocco had been in the business of stealing cars and automobiles in Manhattan and selling them in the Bronx. He had been arrested for that and had served a term in Bronx County, but he had no other criminal record other than that. The probation report made on him at that time, it noted that his parents died when he was a child and that he had been brought up in orphanages and foster homes. He denies the use of narcotics and does not drink to excess, uh, the report kind of said, but he does admit sexual promiscuity also. He, you know, he's not part of any organized social group, any crime groups. Um, he, he doesn't really have that many friends and he kind of just thought that he received a poor break in his life so he was kind of like the woe is me type of person and he attributes his actions to the lack of helpful guidance from his elders which I'm sure definitely plays a part you know he grew up in orphanages without parents you know definitely a lack of guidance for him Um, but a lot of people viewed him as pleasant and agreeable. He didn't really show any unusual reactions or, like, weird personality traits. He just seemed to be normal. He had normal intelligence. Um, and even at the psychiatric ward at Bellevue Hospital, it said he wasn't insane. He was not mentally defective. He was of average intelligence. He didn't have delusions or who's hallucinations and he was emotionally cheerful so kind of not really can't blame it on the 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 psychological aspect of his life six days after the shooting in the subway Rocco's trail was picked up in the Caskills where he was riding in a stolen car he forced a number of farmers at the point of a gun to give him food (laughs)
0: <laughs> give me that ear core. yeah for real <laughs> yeah throw the tomatoes too <laughs> come on come on give
1: me some cucumbers while you're at it <laughs> 50 state police and two New York detectives found his car parked on the side of a mountain road and soon afterward discovered Rocco in a sleeping bag under a spruce tree um, it was at night and there were like 10 inches of snow deep that he was sleeping in the sleeping bag. So he was dedicated to his getaway. (laughs) Karma. Karma, man. Um, The police called Rocco to surrender and one of them fired a warning shot into the air. And then Rocco fired four times in the direction of the flash and then he was killed when the police opened up. Um, Among the things taken from his pockets was a print of the picture of Olga and himself in the nightclub that I guess he just had kept on him. I think he was just so obsessed with Olga that it drove him actually insane to do this. So Pearl and Olga, after all of this, after Pearl thought she was taking an x-ray picture of Olga... And shot her. Her leg had to be like partially amputated. They still became friends after it, (laughs) you know, surprisingly. And they still would see each other occasionally, like after this whole crazy situation. Um, Pearl has married and she raised a family. Olga barely manages to earn a living, sadly, um, because she would sell costume jewelry. She kind of, it was hard, struggling with like the uh, healing process of her leg and kind of uh, probably the trauma too of everything that happened. Um, For years she had hopes of obtaining some type of compensation for the loss of her leg. Uh, Because she and her lawyers believed that the police had been negligent in not protecting her from Rocco, Which I 100% agree with the amount of times that she called and told them. So I think that she should have get some compensation for that. Um, And the case came up in the New York County Supreme Court eventually in the form of a suit for $200,000 in damages brought by Olga as the plaintiff against the city of New York as the defendant the trial lasted for five days and was presided over by Justice Court Joseph A. Cox and you know Olga was on crutches she couldn't walk fully and she walked to the witness stand to tell her story various detectives corroborated those portions of it Um, that had to do with her efforts to have them protect her from Rocco. Pearl also was there and told her story, her side of everything, and you know, after hearing all the facts of the case, Justice Cox dismissed Olga's claims. And it was the facts of the case that were against Olga. Nobody denied that the police department had been informed that Rocco was trying to kill Olga. If Rocco himself had followed her into the subway and shot her, Olga might have won the case or even had the case against the city on the ground of police negligence. But apparently their, you know, their excuse for it was as Mr. Miller the defense attorney argued that was not what had occurred. He says he seemed to find it difficult to settle on an objective that described the scheme that Rocco, in his jealousy, had thought up. The facts in this case indicate that this plaintiff was shot by another passenger on the subway, a woman unknown and unsuspected uh, by the name of Pearl Lusk, under the most unsuspicious and un anticipated bizarre and fantastic circumstances so they're basically saying like you don't have a case because he's not the one that was on the train and shot you so how was police supposed to protect you when it was just this random woman who shot you but in reality he hired the woman under false pretenses she didn't know that this was the case you know she thought she was taking an x-ray picture of her and it's still negligent because they really weren't protecting her very much.
0: Yeah, it's almost like it be the same as, like, a hire to kill. Yeah, exactly. But they just dismissed her case. She got nothing. And
1: basically, they just said, screw you and good luck, you know? Oh, my God. Which is just so messed up. So... Olga's attorney argued as best as he could, but it was definitely evident that no amount of explanation or any type of argument that he could get around the facts. And the court rendered this decision, and he says the proof is clear that a woman unknown to the plaintiff was duped into carrying an ordinary appearing package containing a gun with which she shot the plaintiff, believing she was photographing her. In the absence of any proof showing that the defendant foresaw or could reasonably have foreseen such an occurrence and took no effective action to avoid the same, there can be no recovery from injuries received from such an assault. But, like, in my mind, I'm just like... But if they took her claims more seriously from the very beginning I don't know they could have stopped him sooner arrested him for all these threats and for kidnapping her and for taking her against her will pointing guns at her pointing knives at her or even so this might not have happened like at all because he would have been captured by the police or whatever so I still think that there was negligence on their side, but that's just not how it turned out, unfortunately, for Olga. So she just she lost her husband. Her husband went crazy. She, she lost she, her leg. She lost her leg. She lost her a lot of her abilities in life and ability to work, and she got nothing out of it.
0: I mean, she got no friend. She got a friend with the lady that took her leg. <laughs> yeah, that sucks. I mean, I'm glad we didn't live in the 40s, because. I mean, back then, you were just basically sit down, be a pretty little lady, and shut your mouth.
1: Rough times. Um,
0: But, yeah, there for sure should have been, like, an attempt of murder charge. Yeah, or
1: something. I mean, I know he died, but, like, just to give her some justice in any form, instead of just being like, no, sorry, we're ignoring all of your claims, it's just messed up. I mean, it's a sad story, but it's not like... It's not like depressing because at least she lived and then he died, so she didn't have to live in fear of him anymore.
0: But and him, dude, if I was sleeping in ten inches of snow in a sleeping bag, I might just turn myself in to have like at least the cell would be warm. That's what I'm <laughs> saying.
1: Ten inches of snow—that's
0: dedication to get away. No shit. I wouldn't even be sleeping. I'd just keep moving <laughs> until I got somewhere warmer. Keep walking till you hit Florida. Exactly. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh yeah, but that uh that was the story of Pearl and Olga. So, you know, definitely a different story, but interesting, of course. I, my just my favorite, I mean, not that it's good, but just I just love that she legitimately thought she was taking an x-ray photo of her and she actually shot this woman <laughs> with a freaking gun.
0: Their legit rider dies. <laughs> legit. <laughs> And the fact that uh. she it still didn't click after she shot her. She said, I was
1: taking a picture of this woman and somebody <laughs> shot her. It's like, bitch, girl, that's uh. you, girl. Wait, what? Yeah. She's no. like, I, I did that. Uh. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, and again, um, that information came from the New Yorker. Um, so shout out to them. And if you guys stuck around for the whole story, thank you. Thank you for listening.
0: It was touch and go for a minute, but mhm we pulled through.
1: Yep. Sobered up throughout the story.
0: That <laughs> just means this time for another shot. <laughs> oh baby, oh boy. <laughs> um I don't really have anything else new. Um I finished Dead to Me, which was sad. I got to get on that. Um, I started White Lotus. So good, right? It is. Um, I'm only a first season girl right now. I didn't finish the first season yet. Okay. So I'm a little behind. So hopefully next week we can at least catch up on the first season. Mm-hmm. But I'm into it. I'm into it. Which, ding, 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 because there was a moment that I was like watching White Lotus and I'm totally getting into it. My husband had no idea because he was out of town, and then he came home, and he, like, surprised me with, like, this trip he planned to Hawaii. I'm like, wait, what? Oh, my God. I'm like... That's oh. so perfect. Yeah, and I bought him, like, a Hawaiian dashboard girl in his stocking for Christmas, not knowing. So, I'm like, dude, I like, manifested the shit out of that. You did. That's <laughs> meant to be. Seriously. So, yeah, I'll be, uh, going to Honolulu here in... August, so that means I gotta start working out and dieting and getting my Hawaiian hot girl body going. me and, the, Ugh, me and the take some work. Me and the creepies are all jealous.
1: We're gonna look at all your pictures. Well, at least I am. I don't know if you guys will see them, but <laughs> I'm gonna see them. It's <laughs> uh, so exciting. That's awesome.
0: Yeah, I think that's... Oh! Uh, me and my daughter and her best friend... We watched Smile. Oh, yeah. Which is creepy. It was decent. It was good. I mean, to me, it was just, like, a another, you know, horror movie, whatever yeah. they call it. Like a...
1: Like a spiritual one, right? It's, like,
0: more of, like, a... Well, it was like, a demon that, like, takes over these bodies or whatever. Okay. But to me, it was just, like, you know, just another... A horror movie right know. but it had a creepy smile and it kind of it got to the girls for a second so I kept walking around the house and they would turn around and I would just be standing there smiling, smiling. or like I would send them a snap picture <laughs> of me like this creepy ass smile and I'd send it to him and I'd hear him kind of like laughing from the other room like oh my god <laughs> stop so that was a decent one but I think that's all I got right now good stuff though Holidays just ended, so you know we didn't have a whole lot of time to get stuff right. in. Right, yeah. B- busy times, um, busy times for sure. But we'll get back on track. Uh, maybe next week we'll have a story, and then hopefully we'll have a, a horror, movie, horror movie segment.
1: Yes. Um,
0: to talk about after.
1: To throw in there for sure.
0: So, all right, well, thanks for sticking around for another one. Yes, thank you guys, and we will catch you next week with a whole new story. On um, that note, we got to go. Stay creepy. Bye. Bye.